to work up a study on the priest of God. And so I thought we would do that for our Bible class this morning and talk about the priesthood, the characteristics of the priest, how they serve and what the benefits of service are. And we've titled the lesson, A Living House. What we first need to understand, though, is what the temple of God actually is. I believe it's best defined as Exodus chapter 29 and verse 45, in which God says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. Oftentimes when we think of the temple, we're thinking of an earthly building that was built. But what the temple simply is, is where God dwells and where He is. And that's the idea we need to have for our study this morning. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, the Hebrew writer, and he talks a lot about the temple and about the priest, he says, but when Christ entered as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And so we find the Hebrew writer talking about there's a new temple. It's not the temple of the Old Testament. It's not the temple in which they went to worship, but there's a more greater tabernacle that the high priest has entered into. And so the question we then have for us today when we talk about the priest is where's the temple? What's the temple? Well, I want to suggest to you it's the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So Paul is talking about each person's body is a temple, so then we talk about the temple being Ephesians chapter 2, if you will. Turning to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read starting in verse 19. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So Paul, writing to those in Ephesus, he talks about you're being built up into a holy temple, the place of God, where God dwells. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verses 11 down through 16, we won't read it now, we'll read it later in our study this morning, but in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 16, Paul talks about the body, and he talks about the work of the body, and he talks about each individual part of the body, being fitted so perfectly together. And so I want to suggest to you then that the temple of God is the body, what we call the Lord's church today. Now, we need to talk about the priest of God. In Exodus chapter 30, in verse 30, Moses records the priesthood really being initiated, the first priest being called into service under this new law, under the law that's been given in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 30, in verse 30, he says, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. So the first priests we find in this, what we'll call the Levitical priesthood, are going to be Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, God says, And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you will say to the sons of Israel. God foretold you would be a nation of holy people, a nation of priests. But unfortunately, that priesthood was imperfect. That priesthood was imperfect because of the sin of man. 
and there would be a change coming. We could look in many places about the change. We could look over in Jeremiah, but I want to turn with you to Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. In Ezekiel, chapter 36, starting in verse 20. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 20. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in your sight. What's going on in Ezekiel is the people of God have profaned Him. They have gone against Him. They are not doing what they ought to be doing. And God says, I'm going to make my name holy through you. I'm going to use you to make my name holy. There's a change coming. Something different is going to happen. It's not going to go on the same way as it's always been. And then we come to 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 9, in which Peter uses several Old Testament passages together in this verse, one being Exodus chapter 19 where we just read a moment ago when he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may practice, proclaim, excuse me, the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. He's using the same language because the new priests in the kingdom of God or in the temple of God are Christians, are those who've been called out, are the elect. And so if we want to define priests of God then this morning, let's think of a few titles we could give them. We could call them the ministers to God and to His work. We could call them the mediators between God and the people. We can call them the workers of the temple. We can say that they're dedicated in service to God, and we could also say that they're worshipers of God. And what we find is the priests of the Old Testament, the roles in which they fulfilled, these titles that we can give them are very similar to us today as Christians, or ought to be. They ought to be the same works that we're involved in. So then who are the members of this priesthood? If this is who the priests are, who are the members? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8, it is written that at the time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve Him, and to bless His name until this day. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Why would we have confidence to enter in the holy place by the blood of Jesus unless we're serving as priests? Why would we believe that we have the ability to do that through Christ unless we recognize that we are priests in service to God? And so what we want to do for the, our time this morning, I want to look at characteristics of individual priests We'll look at characteristics of the priesthood combined, how we act together, and then finish up by looking at the work and the rewards of service. The first characteristic we want to call about individual priests would be their willingness. 
We find priests all throughout the Bible. I think that in 1 Samuel we find the priest Eli and his sons. And Eli was a wicked one. He did not do as he should. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, Thus the sin of the young men, this being Eli's sons, was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Why do they despise the offering of God? Why do they despise doing the work they were supposed to do? Because they didn't want to serve. They were unwilling to serve. They were unwilling to do the duty that they were given. In Psalm 42, the psalmist writes, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. That's the idea that we as priests should have. That's the idea that should be on each of our hearts, that we want God so much that we want it more than anything else. And we are willing to serve Him and willing to be with Him because there's nothing greater we could do. That's the type of service we're to give. And so that leads into that second characteristic of service or of being a servant. We sing a song on occasion, servant song. Make me a servant just like your son. We need to be involved in service to God. In Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 7, Moses tells Aaron to come near and to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for yourself and the people. See, Aaron had a service he was supposed to do. He was not only to make sure he was clean, but he was to offer in order to make sure that the people were taken care of, the people were atoned for, the people were cleansed. And so Moses is instructing Aaron to do this, and he goes and do it because he's serving God in that way. Remember when we talked about in Hebrews chapter 8 and in chapter 9, in which Christ is the high priest? We as priests, we as Christians, let me start there, we as Christians imitate Christ, or we're to imitate Christ. We as priests should be imitating the high priest and striving to be more like the high priest. And so if we want to talk about service, I don't think we could go anywhere better than Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, in which Christ says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Folks, there's a work that each one of us can do in the kingdom. There's a work that each one of us can do in the temple. But we have to be willing to serve And then we actually have to serve and be in service to God. Involved in that is the idea of obedience. You don't have to turn there, but in Leviticus chapter 10, hopefully it's a story that's familiar to you, you have the sin of Nadab and Abihu. And what they've done is they've seen in chapter 9, they have seen their father give offering to God, and the fire comes out and consumes it, for it was a pleasing sacrifice. And so what they do then is they go and they offer something unauthorized to God. They're offering to God, but they're doing something in an improper manner. They're then unauthorized to do what they're doing. And so you know what happens. The fire comes out and consumes them instead of the offering. We have to make sure that we're obedient to God. You know, if we talk about obedience, I don't think maybe that there's a better example in the churches than maybe the church at Philadelphia, recorded in Revelation chapter 3. In verse 10 where it says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world is to test those who dwell 
on the earth. And can I add another characteristic? This idea of compassion. Where I preach, we're working through the book of Matthew on Wednesday night. Matthew is the only writer to record Christ quoting not once but twice, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, which Hosea writes, I desire compassion or mercy, depending on the translation, instead of sacrifice. And I think it's interesting that Matthew records that because I believe it to be a central theme throughout the book of Matthew, this idea of I desire compassion and not sacrifice. To give you an example, sacrifice is today Sunday morning and so I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. It's Sunday morning. We have to go to church services. Compassion would be, I have an opportunity to be with my brethren and to serve God, and so I go. One's done out of requirement, and one's done out of love. That's the difference between compassion and sacrifice, or mercy and sacrifice. And so as priests, we're to be compassionate in that we love God so much we do what we're supposed to because we love Him because He sent His Son to die for us. And so we have to be compassionate. We have to love God so much that we are then willing to serve. We serve and we obey. Another characteristic would be to be found blameless. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, The Hebrew writer says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. John writes over in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6, No one abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. We try to present ourselves as blameless before God. We try to present ourselves in a right state with God, so that we might be found acceptable to Him. Oh, we could go through a bunch more characteristics, but our time won't allow this morning. But I would, if you're taking notes, if you will, write down Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, I'll read it real quick. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated for sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There's some great characteristics there that we need to try to emulate and to imitate and to be more like each and every day. But now let's talk about the priesthood. So there's characteristics of how I as an individual priest ought to be. How should we collectively as the priesthood act? And I'm not talking just about the church here at College View, but I'm talking about Christians in general. How should we act together? Well, first let me suggest working together. And now let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 11. If you ask anyone from my congregation, they'll tell you that Ephesians chapter 4 is probably one of my favorite chapters because I use it a lot when we're talking. And I love verses 11 down through 16. Let's read that first. Verse 11, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, 
As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. First thing I want to point out, in verse 11, Paul mentions all these different roles, apostles and pastors and teachers and ministers. Evangelists, excuse me. And when I first think about it, I go, does Paul not realize we're priests of God? Does Paul not realize that we are now priests of God that serve Him? Did Paul miss the memo? Well, certainly not, because he writes about it in 1 Corinthians. So rather, let me suggest to you, these are different roles of the priest. Just like in Deuteronomy chapter 29, in which there were different duties assigned to the priest. Not every priest did the same job. The priests of God today don't all do the exact same work. We all have different roles. But what I find so captivating in this passage is that down in verse 16, where it connects this all together. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Ladies and gentlemen, every person matters in the kingdom. And every person matters in each local congregation. Because the reality of it is, sometimes we get into a situation, depending on the size of our group, that, well, I don't have to volunteer to do anything. I don't have to get involved. I don't have to necessarily be there every service because no one will miss me or because I won't have a part or because they've got enough urns in the fire or enough hands going. The reality is if I myself don't do my part, the entire church suffers. If I don't do my work, then the body cannot function at its top performance. Because the body is fitted together by what every single joint supplies. Each of us have a role. And if I don't do my part, then it affects everyone else in the body. And so each of us have to work, have to diligently work together because my role, coupled with your role, will give us the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so I have to work hard, you have to work hard, and I can't slouch on my duties or give slack to it because the reality then is the congregation that I'm assembled with and the Lord's church will not be able to grow like it should if I don't do my part. In also, we want to point out, we worship together. Another characteristic of the priesthood is they worship together. In Hebrews chapter 9, the Hebrew writer is referring back to the Old Testament priesthood. And he says, Now when these things had been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing divine worship. They're worshiping together. They're working together. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, Day by day, continuing with one of mine in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. One of the things that pains me is we're not even 2,000 years removed. And you may say that's a long time. 
But really it's not. Really it's not to say that it's been a very, very long time since the early church. But in 2,000 years what we've lost is this idea of being together. We've lost this idea of being together not only inside the congregation, but being together outside and spending time with one another. The early church did it day by day. And it's a sad thought to me that this is something we've lost. The early church worshipped together and they spent a lot of time together. And that's how the priesthood is to be. The priests are to spend a lot of time with one another. I also want to point out that the priesthood, they serve under the high priest. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, now the main point is what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We all have to realize that we are under one head. We are under one person, and that is the high priest, that being Christ. And then also they're the called out. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll read verse 9 again and pick up verse 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look at all the beautiful ways that Peter describes the called out there. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light, once were not a people, but now are. Once had not received mercy, but now have. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what God has done for the priest, what God has done for His children? Now let's talk about the work. We've just really described the characteristics of the priest and how they're to be. We haven't actually got into what their work is. First, let me suggest serving God. That involves serving His people. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and and the love which you had shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. One verse that you probably have heard before, and some call it the verse that we harp on, is Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 and 25. There's more in that passage than just being sure you're at the assembly. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another in love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Absolutely, we're to be at the congregation when we assemble. But did you notice the first part? Let us consider how to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. Before we ever get to the worship assemblies, before we ever get to Bible study, you know what we do? We have a work to do before we ever get here. We're to consider how we can stimulate one another. How can I encourage one another? How can I love one another? How can I show that to my brethren? How can I do that? I have to put thought 
into the worship assembly before I ever get here. Because the reason why we're here is we serve God, but you notice that also at the end of verse 25? But encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're here to encourage one another, so that means I have to put thought in it before I get here. I have to consider it before I show up. Because I'm serving my people, the people of God. We also serve God, though, in worship. Look over in Psalm 99. Psalm 99. In this psalm, the psalmist, who's unidentified, is calling to mind several things from the Old Testament. He even calls to mind Moses and Aaron who were priests and how they served. But let's start in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among His priests, and Samuel was among those who called His name. And they called upon the Lord, and He answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept His testimonies and the statutes that He gave them. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at His holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. In nine verses, three times, it either says, Holy is He, or Holy is the Lord our God. That's the reason we worship God, because He is holy and worthy to be praised. We also serve God, though, under His authority and not outside of it. Again, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, in the story of Nadab and Abihu. I've softened my view of Nadab and Abihu over the last few years. Nadab and Abihu, I believe, my opinion, were trying to serve God. Because you notice what their father has just done in the verses previous, and it's almost as if they say, now it's our turn to offer to God. The problem is what they did is they offered something that was unauthorized. Folks, even good intentions, if we veer outside the Bible, are wrong. We must serve God solely inside His authority and nowhere else. They're also the work of the priesthood to keep themselves clean. I have to work so that I'm not disqualified. I have to work so that I am presented as clean before God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, it says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Down in verse 20 of chapter 6, it says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. I have a duty to present myself clean before God. I have a duty to make sure that I am not stained with sin when I come before God to serve Him and to serve His people. So I have to present myself clean. I have to cleanse myself of whatever it may be that's keeping me apart from God. 
because if I don't keep myself clean, then the last, the next point we make about their work really won't matter at all. And that's to keep the temple clean. If I can't keep myself clean, then I can't keep the temple clean. It's a sad thought. Sad thought to me. But there are many churches that at one time stood firm for the Word of God. And then they allowed something to come in. And they allowed something to overshadow God. And they did not keep the temple clean, and so thus they fell away. We have a duty. We have a duty to stamp out false doctrine. Notice Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among with the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, seeking perverse things to draw disciples after them. We have to be careful not to let false false doctrine enter the doors. We have to be careful not to let false doctrine become so rampant that it leads others away. Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders because the time is coming in which that will happen. And if the Ephesian elders don't stamp it out, if the Ephesian elders don't put it out, if the Ephesian elders don't stand strong, folks are going to be led away. And any time someone's soul is on the line, it's a serious matter. Something that we must take caution and care to try and control. So we need people to step up and to do their duty to keep the temple clean. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you think that you don't have to be the one to stand up against false doctrine, because it's not a big deal, that's the reality of it is a lot of people just don't see it as a big deal. You can have your opinion and I can have mine. Well, you might take some time to read over in the book of Revelation about the churches of Thyatira and Pergamum because the language used there is very strong. That would be Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 down through 23. You have one church that is dealing with the work of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Balaam. Thyatira has shipped Jezebel, who has led many away. It's a danger if we don't keep false doctrine out. But also, we have to keep the temple clean from stumbling blocks. We won't take the time to read it, but if you have the chance, read over in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Both those passages dealing with stumbling blocks. 
I want to tell you, stumbling blocks can appear at any moment. Stumbling blocks could be, you need to change the way you say this word. Sometimes we may seem that's harmless. I'm becoming more and more convinced with the state of our country right now that the worst stumbling block is politics. Because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to get on my soapbox for half a second and get back off, I promise. The Bible doesn't say which party to vote. And if I go and I say, if you don't vote this way, you're sinning. You may have lost a new convert through studying about it. You may have lost someone who's trying to become a Christian. You may have damaged relationships with your brethren. We serve God, not the earthly kingdom. We ought to be more concerned with the state of the kingdom of God than we are anything on this earth. Whatever you do, don't put a stumbling block before your brethren. There's a few benefits of service. Most importantly, I would say, is you get to work with God. When you're looking at service and work that you do, sometimes it matters your co-workers. It matters who you're working with. There's no greater blessing than to work with God, the Creator of the universe, the Creator of all, the One who sent His Son to die. In Psalm 65, in verse 4, Psalmist says, How blessed is the One whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. What a great blessing it is to work with God. Not only we work with God, but we work under His authority. When I worked for the state of Tennessee, I worked in a satellite office, which meant I had a boss at the satellite office, I had a boss in Nashville, who had another boss in Nashville, and then the department director. Four bosses. And sometimes I would do what one of them said and get in trouble with one of the other three. Because you weren't sure whose authority was the right one for that day. And I see some smiles. I'm thinking that maybe some work in this area might be the same. Sometimes you work under people's authority and not sure how it's going to go. Here's the reality. If we work under the authority of God, nothing else matters. If we work solely under what He has told us, nothing else matters because we know we're being faithful to Him. And we know we're doing what He said. Christ said in that great commission in chapter 28 of Matthew, verses 18 through 20, that all authority had been given to Him on heaven, in heaven and on earth. We'll follow that work, then there's great blessing there. Also, we're working with fellow priests. Fellow priests who know the struggles we have, who have issues just like we do, that we can lean on and get guidance from and get encouragement from. And then we're also working to bring others to God. And there's no greater blessing than to be able to serve God and bring others to Him. 
So finally, let's talk about the reward of service for our last couple minutes we have. If I was doing a job interview, I would tell you, here's the work, here's the characteristics or the skills that we would like to see, here's the benefits you have, but in my time of working in the administrative side of things, the number one question always is, what's my pay? A lot of people don't care about all that in between. What's my pack? The reward of service is this. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. The priests who have entered into service and have been faithful and are looking to Him to receive salvation when He comes again. Over in Revelation chapter 21, we're going to end with this. In Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 10, you have this description of what we call the New Jerusalem, the Holy City. And it paints this beautiful picture. In verse 11 it says, Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. Verse 12, it has a great high wall with twelve gates. In verse 13, there are three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. In verse 16, it's laid out as a square and it's great in width and it gives the height and in verse 18, it talks about the material of the wall being jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. In verse 19, the foundation stones, and it gives all these beautiful stones in verses 19 and 20. Read with me though, starting in verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and it is the lamp of the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. In this passage, we find that the temple is God. One of the blessings is getting to be with God for an eternity more. But it's only to those who are found in the Lamb's book of life. If you come down to verse 14 of chapter 22, I love how the New American Standard writes this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Most other versions say, those who keep the commandments of God. Blessed are they that keep His commandments. I love how the New American Standard translates that. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Because the idea is, I'm going to present myself clean before God. And when I'm sold, it's going to be washed, because I need to be clean before God. That's who will be found. That's who will have this reward of service. And so I thank you this morning for your attention as we've talked about the temple of God and who the priests are, what their work is, 
and how they're benefited and the reward of their service. Thank you for your time.